Chapter 2, on prayer, which is one of the pillars of Islam. It is reported on the authority of Talha ibn Ubaidillah, radiyallahu an, that a person with disheveled hair, one of the people of Najd, came to the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Only one point I want to make in that first sentence is Najd. وَمَا أَدْرَاكَ مَا يعني Najd is a little bit of a problem for a lot of people to understand. Najd in the ahadith of the Prophet sallallahu does not refer to the Najd that we know of today. It does not refer to the area of uh, Riyadh and Qasim that we know today that we call Najd. Najd refers to somewhere from that area extending east. Effectively, Najd is a flat land that comes after a, a mountainous area. And so if you drive on the road from Medina to Riyadh, one of the things that you will notice is the further you get towards the coast uh, and indeed towards sort of, I guess, where we are and even a bit further than that, you'll see that there are a lot of mountain ranges between Medina and between Riyadh. And where the mountain ranges flatten out and it continues through into uh, the side of Persia into what is now Iran and onwards, that this is Nejd. And so the, the area of Iran which is closest to us where we are now is Nejd. And likewise, uh, the area slightly on the very, very, very eastern coast of Saudi Arabia and sort of where we are, I guess, where we are now, a little bit north of where we are now, is also referred to as Nejd. And so Najd in the Arabic language is any flat land which comes after a mountainous range. But in general, the Najd that they understood was the very, either the very, very eastern part of the Arabian Peninsula or beyond that into what was then Persia and what is now Iran. And we should also mention, because whenever Najd comes up, it comes of the hadith uh, of the Prophet ﷺ regarding invoking barakah for the people of Najd and that he refused. Ayhwani, whether we refer to Najd as the eastern part of Saudi Arabia or whether we refer it as the western part of Iran, there have been a number of great Islamic scholars from these areas which we all agree upon. From among them, you can say that the imma of the Qutb al-Sitta were from the area known, or some of them were from the area known as Najd. So this, this hadith regarding not invoking blessings for the people of Najd does not apply to every single person born in that area, nor does it apply to the land in general. You know, at the end of the day, if we applied this, we would apply it to Abu Hanifa and to Ahmed ibn Hanbal and to you know, the imma of Islam, many, many of whom came from the area which comes within the understanding of Najd in the hadith of the Prophet As for, I mean, people tend to apply it according to their particular sort of uh, circumstances in the sense that if they dislike a particular people, they will sort of start, okay, he's from Najd and the Prophet refused to invoke Barakah for the people of Najd. The Prophet invoked Barakah for the people of Sham. 
And yet look at what is going on in Sham And look at the people in Sham Some of the people in Sham and what they are doing At the end of the day no land is free of evil people And no land is free of good people And Alhamdulillah And so it's not right for us to For example the fact that the Prophet ﷺ made dua for the people of Sham And he didn't make it for the people of Najd In Sham there are people who Allah knows their situation And you see what is going on in Syria And what is going on around the world at the moment You see that Sham has its own problems And yet Sham was a place the Prophet ﷺ made dua for barakah And you see that Najd, whether it applies to where we are now Whether it applies to further on Is an area the great scholars of Islam came from So at the end of the day There are areas the Prophet ﷺ invoked barakah for And areas that he did not But there are good people that came from wherever they came from and at the end of the day, some of us come from countries that have no Islamic uh, history worth mentioning or no great Islamic culture, no great Islamic tradition. And yet, those places have produced Muslims who were great scholars of Islam in places and not in others. So at the end of the day, we need to understand these ahadith in context that whether or not the Prophet ﷺ made dua for a certain area, at the end of the day, there were great scholars who came from these areas and this is enough of a proof that one of the companions of the Messenger of Allah anhu, وسلم, came from Najd and yet the Prophet وسلم, refused to make dua for, the, for Barakah for the people or for the land of Najd so in this we have to understand these ahadith in context and this hadith is important to understand it in that regard came to the Messenger of Allah and we heard the humming of his voice, but we could not fully discern what he had been saying. Till he came near to the Messenger It then became clear to us that he was asking about Islam. The Prophet said to him five prayers during the day and the night. Five prayers during the day and the night. Upon this he said, am I obliged to say any other prayer than this? The Prophet ﷺ said, no, accept what you do voluntary out of your own free will. And then he said, and the fast of Ramadan. And the inquirer said, am I obliged to do anything else besides this? The Prophet ﷺ said, no, accept what you do from your own free will. And the Prophet ﷺ told him about the zakah. He said, am I obliged to pay anything else besides this? The Prophet ﷺ said, no, but whatever you pay voluntarily out of your own free will. The man turned back and said, I will neither add anything to this, nor will I decrease anything from it. The Prophet ﷺ said, he is successful if he is true to what he affirms. We want to begin this by... Noting that Al-Imam al -imam Muslim and indeed Al-Imam Al-Nawawi Both of them included this hadith Which is all about the matters of outward actions The prayer and the zakah and the fasting and so on and so forth In Kitab Al-Iman And this is a strong affirmation from Al-Imam Muslim That your outward actions are a part of your Iman because there is nothing here mentioned within this hadith about any of the actions of the heart or any of the beliefs of the heart. This is about how often you pray. It's about how often you fast. It's about how often 
you give your zakah. And so you'll note that Al-Imam Muslim included this as the second hadith in uh, Kitab al-Iman. Uh, it's actually the, the seventh or eighth hadith in uh, Kitab al-Iman, but in terms of repetition, it's the second sort of unique hadith in Kitab al-Iman. That, the, that Al-Imam Muslim included this, even though this hadith has only to do with the outward actions. And that is because these outward actions are a part of your iman. And an evidence for this is the statement of Allah Azza wa Jal in Surah Al-Baqarah, وَمَا كَانَ اللَّهُ لِيُضِيعَ إِيمَانَكُمْ Allah was not going to cause your iman to be lost. What does Allah mean? He was not going to cause your iman to be lost. If you read the ayah, Allah Azza wa Jal is talking about your prayer, changing your prayer from the one qibla to the other qibla, from facing Jerusalem to facing Makkah. And then Allah Azza wa said, after talking about changing the qibla from one side to the other, Allah Azza wa said, وَمَا كَانَ اللَّهُ لِيُضِيعَ إِيمَانَكُمْ Allah did not cause your iman to be lost, i.e. your prayer to be lost. And that's because your prayer is part of your iman. And your prayer is iman and it increases your Iman. And that is why Al-Imam uh, Imam Muslim mentioned here. And likewise, you notice that Al-Imam An-Nawawi said, on prayer, which is one of the pillars of Islam, i.e. that Islam and Iman, when they're separate, they mean the same thing. So he's using Islam interchangeably and Iman interchangeably. This man was a, uh, from among the Bedouins, and that is why his voice was difficult to understand and this was the way that they spoke that he was he was he had a very difficult voice or the nature of his voice was hard to, to hear and when he came very near they heard that he was talking about uh, a question or he was asking about Islam and that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam either the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam mentioned the Shahada to him in the beginning but the narrator didn't mention it or he already knew the Shahada. The Prophet ﷺ saw that he had already become a Muslim and he was asking, what next? What comes after this? I've said, La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah. Now tell me what, what comes after this. The Prophet ﷺ mentioned the most important of all of the deeds, which is the prayer. And the prayer is the single most important action that you can do after your testimony that there is no God worthy of worship except Allah and that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is the messenger of Allah. This prayer is absolutely everything. And it's absolutely critical. If your prayer is accepted, all of your deeds will be accepted. And if your prayer is not accepted by Allah azawajal on the day of judgment, none of your deeds will be accepted. It is the first thing you'll be taken to account for from your actions on the day of judgment. So it's absolutely vital that a person looks at their prayer. And everyone here, as far as I'm aware, we don't have any non-Muslims in the audience. Everyone here is Muslim. They accepted Islam. The next question you need to ask yourself is regarding the prayer. And look at the beauty and the ease of Islam that the Prophet ﷺ mentioned here. So the Prophet ﷺ said, or that the man said, do I have to do any other prayers besides this? 
Look at the companions. Look at the way they wanted the knowledge. Is there anything else? Is this all? The Prophet ﷺ said, no, whatever else you do is voluntary. And that shows you a very clear principle that in Islam we have five prayers in the day and the night. Those five prayers are the only prayers that are obligatory for a Muslim to do. Now let's link this to the previous hadith about Islam and Iman and Ihsan. We say that in order for you to be a Muslim, you have to pray. And the prayers that you have to do to obey Allah and not to be disobedient are the five daily prayers. And then after that, whatever else you add is a voluntary act that is going to make you nearer and nearer to Allah. And so all of the sunnah that you add, the witr that you add, the two rak'ah before fajr, the duha prayer, all these things that you add, the night prayer, they are all there to add to your virtue in the sight of Allah, but you have to bring these five in order for those extra ones to be accepted. These five are the most important. So don't ask yourself in the beginning about the sunnah and about the witr and about the other things. But ask yourself, am I praying those five daily prayers on time? And am I praying them in the right way? So the Prophet ﷺ affirmed that these five prayers are the only obligatory prayers in Islam. And that's very important for us, especially when we're dealing with people who are new to Islam. Or we're dealing with people who are just starting to practice Islam. That in the very beginning, the most important thing we need from them is for them to focus on their five daily prayers before everything and anything else. Before they start worrying about all of the other things in Islam, to focus upon the five daily prayers if they are praying them in the right place, in the right time. Because remember, the prayer, and I often mention this, the prayer has three aspects that you must be very careful of. Where you pray, and how you pray, and when you pray or where you pray, and when you pray, and how you pray. When you pray, every prayer has a fixed time. The prayer has been enjoined upon the believers at fixed times. That's when you pray. Where you pray. And this is different for the brothers and for the sisters. For the brothers, it is an obligation to pray the five daily prayers in the masjid. For all those people who hear the adhan, or for all those people who are within easy reach of the masjid, it is obligatory for you to pray your five daily prayers in the masjid. To the point where the Prophet ﷺ wanted to burn down the houses of the people who don't attend the jama'ah. So very important for you to pray your five daily prayers in the masjid. And alhamdulillah, you're in a country where there are plenty of masajid. And the adhan is called out aloud. And that's a huge blessing. And some of you who go back to other countries will realize the, the value of that blessing. To be in a place where you can hear the adhan and you can go and attend the salah in the jama'ah. And a place where people are used to people praying. Where your employer, where your, you know, your... The, your work, your home, people are used to other people going to the prayer. And so it's easy for you to attend the prayer in the jama'ah. 
I know where I live in the UK, in Newcastle. We're in a place where I live about three and a half, three, three and a half miles. So you're talking about, you know, six kilometers, something like that, five and a half, six kilometers away to the, to the nearest masjid. And that's an awful long way to go for five daily prayers. Whereas, alhamdulillah, here you have a big blessing of being able to go to the masjid and being able to perform the prayer in the masjid. As for the sisters, as the Messenger of Allah وسلم, mentioned, the masjid that is near to the house of the sister is better than the masjid that is far away. And praying in her house is better than the masjid in her local vicinity. And praying in her room is better than praying in the rest of her house. So the best place for the sisters to pray is a little space in her own room. That is the, the most virtue. But if she prays in the masjid, there's no harm in that. If the masjid has an area for sisters to pray, and there's nothing wrong. And the Prophet said, do not prevent your women from going to the masjid, and their houses are better for them. So there's nothing wrong with the sister going to the masjid, but the best place for her to pray is a small place in her own house, and that's better than her praying in any other room, uh, and it's better than, and praying in her house is better than her praying in the local masjid, and praying in the local masjid is better than her praying in the larger masjid that she goes to as the Messenger of Allah sallallahu mentioned. Then we came to the fast of Ramadan. And the inquirer said, am I obliged to do anything beside this? And of course, there are many other fasts. Fasting on a Monday, on a Thursday, fasting the 13th, 14th, and 15th of the Islamic calendar, the fast of Dawood, where you fast a day, miss a day, fast a day, miss a day, uh, fasting uh, in the month coming before Ramadan. All of these are, are times when there is a, a strong established sunnah, six fasts from Shawwal. These are all from the reasons or the beneficial times to fast in addition to Ramadan. However, again, this person is asking, am I going to be blamed by Allah? And they're not saying, in the beginning, he's not saying I'm not going to do any other good deeds. But the mentality is, am I going to be blamed? I need to know what is the minimum I need to do. What is the minimum I need to do? The Prophet said, nothing but Ramadan. Everything else is optional. There are great virtues in fasting Mondays and Thursdays. Great virtues in fasting the 13th, 14th, and 15th of the month. Great virtues in fasting a day and missing a day. Great virtues in fasting a great deal in the, in the first half of the month of Sha'ban. Great virtues in fasting uh, in the six days of Shawwal. These are all virtuous days to fast. But what is required from you as a Muslim, and part of this hadith is about knowing where the limits lie. What's required from you is that you fast Ramadan. And everything else is voluntary. Then the Messenger of Allah وسلم, told him about the zakah, and he said, am I obliged to pay anything except this? And you all know the virtue of charity. So I said, no, in terms of the obligation, you don't have anything else to do. This is what you have to do. And this is showing you the ease of Islam, and it's showing you the importance of people knowing where the limits are and knowing where to draw the lines and knowing what it means to fall into the haram and what it means to, you know, where there's some flexibility. You're really, really tired one night. You know, after Maghrib, you're exhausted. But you have to pray Isha. 
As for the other prayers, leave them go to sleep. You're too tired, leave them go to sleep. Because you know where the limits lie. You know where it is forbidden for you to miss and where it is allowed for you to miss when you're sick, when you're not well. Bearing in mind that even the voluntary deeds are not the same. So the witter is not the same as the other prayers. Because the Prophet never left the witter, even when he was sick and even when he was traveling. So the witter is not the same as the other prayers. But it's still a voluntary prayer. It's just not the same as it's got a, of a higher status than the other ones. And so you bear all of these things in mind. Again, you know the virtue of charity, but the only obligation is for you to pay the zakah. Then the man turned back saying, I will neither add to this nor will I decrease anything from it. So this is from the, there, are, there are three groups that Allah Azza wa mentions in the Quran. Uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions three groups nafsi, The one who is oppressing themselves And there is the one who is in the middle And there is the The one who is racing ahead in the good deeds Who is the one who is oppressing themselves? The one who is oppressing themselves Is the one who is doing less than the minimum Less than the minimum. They're not praying there five times a day. This is the volume only nafsi. They're pressing themselves. Who is the muqtasid? Who is the one who is just moderate in the middle? That is the one like the one that is described in this hadith. I'm just going to do the minimum. I'm not going to add anything to it. I'm not going to take anything away from it. Now the problem with this is, even though it is an acceptable sort of place for a person to be, the problem with it is that you have deficiencies in your obligatory deeds. And the voluntary deeds, they make up for those deficiencies that you have. And they make up for those errors that you have. And so aiming to be in the middle is a problem because when you aim to be in the middle, the fear is that you will fall. And if you fall, you have nowhere to fall. You have no safety net. Whereas if you aim to be from the third group, the sabiqun bil khayrati bi'iznillah, those people who are racing ahead to the good deeds. The idea is that if you fall, you have a safety net. You only fall as far as the minimum amount and they make up for the good deeds. However, Islam is there to be easy and this person made this statement saying, I'm not going to add anything nor am I going to decrease anything and the Prophet said he is successful if he is true. In the second narration of an Imam Muslim of the same hadith and an Imam Muslim mentions the 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 second narration, the, 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 uh, another wording of this hadith. The Prophet ﷺ said, And this isn't added here, but I'm going to add it because it's a very interesting statement. The Prophet ﷺ said, What appears to be, and I'm going to translate it as what it appears to be and then explain it. He will be successful by his father if he, is, if, he, if he is truthful. And he will enter Jannah by his father if he is truthful. Now this statement by his father appears to be an, an, an oath, a swearing, like making a, or swearing by other than Allah. And as you know, swearing by other than Allah is not allowed in Islam. So the scholars, they came to explain why is it that the Prophet ﷺ said the words, 
as if he is swearing by his father. The first opinion, and this is what is the most apparent to me, is that this is a statement that doesn't mean what it says. And there is another one that is very similar to that, and that is the statement which is very famous in Arabic, La Amri, by my life. La Amri, by my life. And this is something the companions used to say and the Prophet ﷺ used to say, La Amri, by my life. However, it is simply words and it doesn't have a meaning of an oath. It's something the Arabs used to say from a long time ago. They used to say in their poetry prior to Islam. And it doesn't have a, a meaning of an oath besides Allah. It is simply words that have always been said traditionally. That's one opinion. The second opinion is that this statement was made before Allah made it haram. Because as you know, not everything was made haram on day one in Islam. Things were made haram over a period of time. And that perhaps this was said before it was made haram to swear by other than Allah. Some of the scholars of Islam say that the meaning is by the Lord of his father. But that out of the beauty of the language, the word Lord is taken out. But out of the, the, the meaning here is that by the Lord of his father, i.e. by Allah. Some of them, and this is perhaps one of the more interesting things, say that this is a mistake. And so this is one of the mistakes in Sahih Muslim. And it's in Al-Bukhari as well. So this is something that is not, I said it's not in our book. It's in, it's in Sahih Muslim, but it's not in our book. Some of them said this is one of the mistakes. And this shows you the kind of thing we said when we said that there are very small things that people disagree over. So from those, uh, Shaykh al-Albani, rahimahullah ta'ala, he said that this is a mistake in Sahih Muslim. And that the, that the, the Prophet ﷺ did not say this because it's not in the main narration in Sahih Muslim. It's in one of the subsequent narrations. And that one of the narrators made a mistake. And the fifth is a very similar opinion, but slightly different, is that there was a mistake in the copying of the book and that it was supposed to be by Allah. Aflaha wallahi in sadaq. He has spoken the truth by Allah, but that someone's writing was messy and it became read as wa'abihi by his father and it should have been by Allah. However, one of the things I will just add to this is that there is some disagreement about this word by his father. However, there is no disagreement about la'amri. And la'amri comes in many, many ahadith. That they said, by my life, I swear by my life. However, this is something that's not permissible to say. So we say that these are words that the Arabs used to say in their language that had not got a meaning attached to them. They are just common phrases that people say, you know, and I mean, I don't know what you guys, everyone has their own accents and their own sort of like phrases, but people say things that don't actually mean what they say. I mean, I'll give you an example. In, in, in New, Newcastle, where I come from, people add man. Man to every sentence. Whether they're talking to a man or a woman, you know, they add the word man. It doesn't, it doesn't have a, a, a meaning to it. It's a, an expression that comes just out of the language. It's part of the accent. So at the end of the day, that's something that they said about this, that it's just a part of the accent. But the main thing you need to know is it's not permissible for a Muslim to swear by other than Allah Azza wa Jal 
And one way or another, it doesn't change the fact that it's not permissible for a Muslim to swear by other than Allah. So the reason I mention this is I don't want you to pick up a copy of Sahih Muslim, read it, and then think it's permissible to say, I swear by my father's life, or I swear by my life, or I swear by this, or I swear by that. The only thing you're allowed to swear by is to swear by Allah. However, these are phrases that have no meaning, or they were said before the, the prohibition, or according to the opinion of some of the scholars of hadith, that they are a mistake and that this is not the correct uh, wording of the hadith. And it's not in the wording that I read to you, the first wording that is in the book. So inshallah, this gives us a good, uh, you know, a good understanding of some of the details of the hadith. And it gives us a good understanding of what we mean by the, the little words that people disagree about in Sahih Muslim, whether it's right, whether it's wrong. They're a matter of, of one words or two words, not a matter of the hadith itself. Nobody has any disagreement about the hadith itself. So the hadith has a huge amount of benefit in it for us. That we know our limits, we know what Allah requires from us, and we aim to exceed that. We aim to be from the sabiqeen, those people who are rushing ahead. And it also tells us that we can't rush ahead without doing the obligatory deeds. We can't try and go ahead and get too far along the road and be saying, yeah, I'm praying my taraweeh, but I'm not praying my fajr prayer. Or I'm praying my taraweeh, but I'm not praying my asr prayer. We need to have that basic foundation there and build upon it and that the voluntary deeds have a huge amount of benefit in them because they make up for the mistakes in the obligatory deeds and they make you close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I think we will stop the explanation uh, there, bi-idhnillahi ta'ala, uh, and uh, insha'Allah what we will do is we'll go on to the questions for now, insha'Allah, and then we'll, we'll see how long we have and we can, we can catch up at that point. There's a question from the sisters. Uh, the sister asks, is there a wisdom behind sins since they also fall under qadr? However, we don't use qadr as an excuse for our sin. We use qadr when we've repented from a sin. We don't say qadr Allah, you know, when you're in the middle of doing a sin that someone is smoking and off they go and you know they're taking and they're saying qadr Allah wa ma fa'al. This is the decree of Allah and he does what he wants. Yes, it's the decree of Allah, but it's also the decree of Allah if he puts you into jahannam as well. So it's not for a person to sit there and use it as an excuse. But you can use qadr as an excuse from the sin that you've repented from. So something you've repented from and someone says, oh, but you know, you used to do this. You say, look, this was the decree of Allah and I repented. Because at the end of the day, you're responsible for the sins that you do. But they have a wisdom, no doubt. And part of their wisdom is mentioned in the hadith. That if you didn't sin, Allah would destroy you and replace you with the people who would sin. So that he could forgive them. Or as the Prophet ﷺ mentioned in this hadith. That if you didn't sin, Allah would replace you with another people who would sin. Because Allah wants to demonstrate his forgiveness. And so he wants you to sin, or he wills for you to sin, but he doesn't love for you to sin. He wills for you to sin in order that he demonstrates his forgiveness, and in order that he demonstrates the difference between the people who are working and those who are not. Because there are some people who are sinning and sinning and sinning, and they're not making an effort for themselves. And so those people, it's not fair for them on the day of judgment to be treated the same as the one who's trying to prevent themselves from their desires. And so this person who is trying to prevent themselves 
from their sin and prevent themselves from their desires, this person is deserving of a higher level in the sight of Allah And these are just some of the wisdoms, but otherwise every single thing has a wisdom behind it. Thank you. With regard to the zakah, there are two circumstances with regard to zakah collection. If the government or the waliul amr, and the waliul amr means the one who is in authority, either the supreme ruler or the one who is in authority of a particular area. For example, if you look at the Emirates, the Emirates has a supreme ruler and it has someone who is a ruler of Dubai and it probably has someone who is a ruler of a particular area of Dubai and so on and so forth. Who, these are all called the Walatul Umur. If the Waliul Amr has a system for collecting zakah, you have to obey him. So if, for example, and I don't know the situation in Dubai, the government of Dubai comes around and says, we're collecting this zakah, you give it to them, and it's not permissible for you to give it to anybody else, because the Waliul Amr is the one who has the right to collect the zakah. However, if there is no official zakah collection, and every individual is responsible, like in England, there is no official government zakah collection. Every individual is responsible, then it's, own, it's up to you who you give your zakah to, as long as that person is deserving. However, there are two types of people you cannot give zakah to. One is, the, is your ascendants, your father, your grandfather, your grandmother, and so on and so forth. And the other is your descendants, your children, your grandchildren, and so on. Other, apart from that, you can give zakah to your siblings, you can give zakah to your, your uncles and your aunts, if they are deserving. And the people who are deserving, primarily, the, the groups of zakah are many, but primarily you're concerned with the first two. And there are others, but the primary two that we are mostly concerned with in giving zakah is the fuqara and the masakin, which are the poor and the destitute. So you have the person who has no money at all, and the person who has money, but it's not enough for their basic needs. And there's no harm in you giving it to a near relative, as long as it's not from your direct ascendants, i.e. your father, mother, grandfather, and the reason for that is those are people you are obliged to pay for in Islam. And so it's not for you to say, oh, I'm giving my zakat to them. You have to pay for them anyway. And so you, you can't give you, and likewise your children, you can't give your zakat to. But other than that, you can give your zakat if the government doesn't have a system. However, if the government comes and collects the zakat, or for example, sometimes it's a two-way system. The government collects zakat from your salary, but doesn't collect zakat from the gold that you have in the house, for example. And in this case, the, the zakah that you pay on the, on the gold that you have in the house, this can be your choice who you give it to, and the other zakah is given to the government and they collect it and use it for the decision, and that is up to the waliul amr, the person who is responsible for the zakah, either the supreme ruler or the one who he gives the responsibility of the zakah to. Does that make sense? Sister asks, how do we overcome laziness and strive harder? Can you give us any tips? For example, we want to make uh, memorization of the Qur'an part of our daily schedule or if we want to regularly wake up for the hajjud. At times we feel strong in iman, but when it comes to carrying out these deeds physically, we are unable. I think there are a number of aspects in this. Uh, one aspect is your belief in Qadr, because some of the companions said we have never worked harder than when we understood Qadr or when Qadr was explained to us, we have never worked any harder. Some of the, the, the tabi'een or the companions said this. 
that since we have learned about Qadr, we've never worked harder. So that's one thing. The second thing is learning the virtues of the deeds that you do. So learning the virtues of your prayer, the virtues of your fasting, the virtues of your zakah, the virtues of your memorization of the Qur'an, this will help to inspire you and motivate you. Uh, another thing is raising your iman in other ways. Because good deeds lead to good deeds. Allah increases those who are guided in guidance. Allah increases those who do good deeds and good deeds. So good deeds give sort of rise to other good deeds. And so doing as many good deeds as you can makes it easy. And the fourth that I would mention is dua. And from the dua that you can mention is the dua, Allahumma inni a'udhu bika min al-ajzi wal-kasad. That, oh Allah, I seek refuge from you or with you from laziness and inability. Or min al-hammi wal-hazan wal-ajzi wal-kasad. And there are a number of different wordings of the hadith. Wal-bukhri wal-jubun wa-dala'id-dayn wa-ghalabat-ir-rijal. And this wording is in Ibn Majah and others. But there are a number of, uh, there are a number of different wordings uh, in this regard. Uh, and this dua, you can find it in Hisnul Muslim as well, in the fortress of the Muslim, that, O oh Allah, I seek refuge from, uh, from sadness and from, uh, from being preoccupied or from being depressed and being sad and from being lazy and from be having, you know, being unable to do something and from being stingy or from being uh, cowardly. And I seek refuge from being overcome with debt and from being overpowered by men. And this is from the dua that a person can make. And then a person needs to realize, lastly, that your nafs requires training. And one of the shiuch said to me, and I'm not an expert on camels, but he said to me, your nafs is like a camel. He said, the first time you ask a camel to sit for you, you have to drag it to the ground. But then once it's learned to sit for you, it will sit for you every time. Your nafs is like this. The first time you want to get up for tahajjud, it's very, very hard. You don't want to get up. The sleep is in your eyes. You want to go back to bed. The shaitan is having a go at you. Your own soul is having a, a, a rebellion against you. You, know, you don't want to do it. But you keep doing it one day, two days, three days, four days, five days. And then suddenly it becomes easy. And before you know it, it becomes like a norm. You can't imagine doing anything else. And then maybe a person falls into a sin and they stop doing it. And then again, they have to start again and build themselves up. That striving is very, very, very important. The actual effort of striving, it means um, it, it has a huge impact on your ability to do the deeds. So I would, I would sort of give those points and, and uh, you know, maybe there are others as well. Um, the brother asks, some hadith mentioned, may my mother be sacrificed for you, Ya Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. What does this mean? This again is not a very good uh, translation. Um, the right word is, uh, is, or the right translation is something like, may my mother be a ransom for you. And usually it's may my mother and my father be ransomed for you. I.e. that if, it, it's, it's such a demonstration of love that if you were a captive, I would give my mother and my father as ransom to free you. I, I would exchange my mother and my father to release you. That is the meaning of, uh, of this uh, phrase in Arabic. And it's a phrase, again, it's not a, it's not a literal phrase as in, 
you know, here is my mother and father, and I'm willing to swap them for you. But it's a, a phrase that is demonstrating a person's allegiance and a person's love, that if you were a prisoner, I would take my own mother and father to free you. That may my mother and father be ransomed for you. That is a, a phrase. And there are a number of difficult phrases to understand in Arabic. Um, there are some even more difficult ones. I, we're not, I don't think, going to cover, uh, you know, Sakharatka ummuk, may your mother lose you. Um, and statements like this, may your right hand be covered in dust. And these are all statements that have their understanding. And, and like any idiom and any statement in, a, in another language, it can be hard to translate. But the meaning of the, the sacrifice is, may my mother and father be used as ransom to free you. As in, if you were a prisoner, I would be willing to give up my own mother and father to, to free you. And this is only permissible for the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, who is more dear to us than our mother and our father and our children, and indeed more dear to us than our own selves, sallallahu wa sallam. There's a, there's a hadith which says that Regularly, one of you performs the action of the people of paradise until there is but an arm's length between him and it, and that which has been uh, and that which has been written overtakes him, and so he acts with the actions of the people of the hellfire and thus enters it. And verily, one of you performs the actions of the people of the hellfire until there is but an arm's length between him and it, and that which has been written overtakes him, and so. He acts with the actions of the people of paradise and thus he enters it. Uh, could you please give us a brief uh, explanation of this? Or if we are going to discuss this hadith uh, further, it's, uh, we, can, we can do it later. This hadith is a very, very important hadith. And it's from a hadith al-wa'id, from the hadith of a threat of punishment. And min hadith al-wa'id, and from the hadith that promise good for the people. But it's a very scary hadith in the sense that a person does the action of the people of paradise until there is nothing between him and paradise except an arm's length. And then the decree of Allah overtakes him and he becomes from the people of the hellfire. The best thing that I can say about this hadith is what Ibn al-Qayyim said. Do not think that the person who did the deeds of the people of paradise was doing them sincerely for the sake of Allah. Because Allah would not cause your deeds to be lost. Allah will not take a sincere person who is working sincerely for the sake of Allah and then put them into hellfire. That's not, that's not Allah Azza wa Jalla. Your Lord is not oppressive to his slaves. However, the meaning of this is in the eyes of the people, he did the actions of the people of paradise. But Allah Azza wa Jalla knew that his heart was the heart of the people of the hellfire. So like the munafiq, like the one who has made a partner with Allah in his sincerity, in his intention, or in her intention, or her sincerity, this is a person who in the eyes of the people is doing the actions of the people of paradise. But in reality, they're not doing the actions of the people of paradise. And that is why Allah keeps this individual doing the actions of the people of paradise, and yet they are from the worst of the losers with regard to their deeds. Shall I not tell you of those who are the worst in or the greatest in loss of their deeds? Those people who 
expend all of their effort and they waste all of their effort in this world and they think they are doing the best in deeds. So in the eyes of the people and in the eyes of that person, they are doing the deeds of the people of paradise. But in the reality, in what is with Allah, Allah does not accept their deeds from them and therefore they are from the people of the hellfire. And it's not the understanding of this hadith that a person who is sincere and is doing things for the sake of Allah and in accordance with the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, that Allah will waste his deeds. Allah will not cause your deeds to be lost. And Allah says in another place in the Quran, indeed Allah does not cause the reward of the believers to be lost. And this is mentioned in more than one place in the Quran. Allah doesn't cause the deeds of the believers to be lost, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will cause the deeds of the people who think they are doing good when in fact they are not to be lost. And indeed this is from the hadith al-wa'id which is there to scare you and it's there to make you fear because none of you have a guarantee from Allah Azza wa Jal. And that is why a Muslim balances between fear and hope. You know you don't have a guarantee from Allah that you're going to paradise. You don't have a guarantee from Allah that you know, all your sins are going to be forgiven and it's not going to matter and everything's going to be fine. How do you know you're not from those people who you think you're doing very, very good in the sight of Allah, but in reality Allah hasn't accepted anything from you? None of us know that. And so you keep on striving and you keep on asking Allah's help and you have hope in Allah and you have fear of Allah. You balance yourself between the two. And that is the condition of a believer. We'll take this last question and break for salah. Um, is it allowed to swear by the Qur'an? It depends what you mean by swearing by the Qur'an. If you're swearing by the Qur'an, as in the, the, the text of the Qur'an, the speech of the Qur'an, then this is the same as swearing by Allah. And there's nothing wrong with it. But if you are swearing by the printed mushaf, then this is not permissible. Because the Qur'an is the speech of Allah and it's uncreated. Its letters are uncreated and its grammar is uncreated and its phrasing is uncreated and the order of it is uncreated and the words of it are uncreated. But the printed mushaf that is printed on ink is created and the speech within it is not created. So if you're swearing by the Qur'an as in the, uh, the words of Allah, then this is swearing by Allah and there's no harm in it. But if you are swearing by the printed mushaf, then this is swearing by the creation of Allah and it's not permissible. So we advise people to avoid this because of the confusion that may be there. A person may say, they may take all of the mushaf and say, I swear by the Qur'an. What are they swearing by? Are they swearing by the created pages in their hands or are they swearing by the speech of Allah which is uncreated? This is, it becomes a gray area where it's not clear. Um, although the word Qur'an doesn't refer to the, you know, really to the printed pages. This is a mushaf. So if someone says, I swear by the mushaf, then this is not permissible. But if they say, I swear by the Qur'an, then if they intend the speech of Allah, جل, then there's no harm in swearing by the Qur'an or there's nothing wrong with it. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Uh, Alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salam ala rasulillah. Welcome back to our afternoon session. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wa salatu wa salam ala nabiyyina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in amma ba'd. We have a couple of issues just to tidy up from the previous session on chapter number two. There was one more point that I neglected to mention. I tend to do this as a bit of a habit of mine. Is when I go on to chapter three, I realize there was one thing I meant to mention in chapter two. You'll notice that the Hajj is missing from chapter two. 
you notice that the Hajj is missing from chapter 2. And there are a number of opinions as to why the Hajj is missing from chapter 2, but perhaps the most apparent of them is that the Hajj was made obligatory much, much, very, very, very late on in the life of the Prophet ﷺ. The first Hajj uh, was uh, led by Abu Bakr radiallahu an in the ninth year after the Hijrah, and then, of course, the Prophet ﷺ uh, after that. So you have... Uh, the Hajj was not made obligatory until very, very late in the life of the Prophet ﷺ. And for this reason, this is the most likely and the most apparent reason as to why the Hajj was not mentioned uh, in the hadith which we covered. Uh, with regard to the sister's question uh, regarding swearing by other than Allah, we have two ahadith to mention to you um, that escaped me at the time of the question, but I will mention them now. One is narrated by Imam al-Bukhari. مَنْ كَانَ حَالِفًا فَلْيَحْلِفْ بِاللَّهِ أَوْ لِيَصْمُتْ Whoever is going to swear, then let him swear by Allah or let him be silent. And even more clear than that is the hadith in Jami' Tirmidhi مَنْ حَلَفَ بِغَيْرِ اللَّهِ فَقَدْ كَفَرَ أَوْ أَشْرَكْ Whoever swears by other than Allah has disbelieved or has committed shirk. So these are two evidences for the impermissibility of swearing by other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay, chapter number three, we're not going to spend a great deal of time on because I think a lot of it we will have covered, but we will go through all of the, we will read as much as we possibly can because the aim is really to get, you know, a good, a good chunk of the way through, even though I did say to you and I repeat to you again that I don't believe we will finish all of the material and Allah knows best, we will certainly try, but the idea behind it is to have more material than we need so we don't end up like a train that runs off the end of the track. We have... Wherever we get to, we have material still there for us to study, inshallah ta'ala. Okay, number three, asking about the pillars of Islam. It is reported on the authority of Anas ibn Malik, radiallahu an, that he said we were forbidden that we should ask anything without genuine need from the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. This uh, statement is a very, very important statement. And Al-Imam al-Nawawi narrated in his 40 hadith, a hadith which emphasizes this even further. That the thing which destroyed the people who came before you was their constant questioning and disagreeing with their prophets. Now, there are actually two understandings to constant questioning. What is the meaning of, of asking questions that they were forbidden? One applies only to the time of revelation and one applies to the time of revelation and after the time of revelation. So the one that applies to the time of revelation is asking questions that would lead to further obligations in Islam. And this was forbidden for the companions. And one of the clearest examples of this is when the Hajj was made obligatory, there was a companion who said, Afi kulli amin ya Rasulullah. O Messenger of Allah, do we make Hajj every year? So the Prophet ﷺ remained silent. He said, Afi kulli amin ya Rasulullah. Every year shall we make Hajj, O Messenger of Allah. The Prophet ﷺ was silent. He said, Afi kulli amin ya Rasulullah. Shall I make Hajj every year, O Messenger of Allah? The Prophet ﷺ said, If I had said yes, it would be an obligatory upon you. And in some of the narrations, and then you would not be able to do it. So the companions were forbidden from asking constant questions. 
that would lead to obligations, such as is the example of Bani Israel with regard to the, the example of the calf, the cow. وَإِذْ قَالَ مُوسَى لِقَوْمِهِ إِنَّ اللَّهَ يَأْمُرُكُمْ أَن تَذْبَحُوا بَقَرًا And you know the story in Surah Al-Baqarah. One by one they kept on asking. قَالُوا دُعُوا لَنَا رَبَّكَ يُبَيِّنْ لَنَا مَا هِي Tell us, ask our Lord, any cow, just go find a cow, slaughter the cow. No, no, tell us which cow. Okay, it should be a cow that is neither young nor old. Go and do what you're told. What color should the cow be? Now the cow has to be yellow. Go find any cow that's yellow, that's neither young or old. Inshallah, we'll be guided, but you have to tell us more. And again and again, until they almost destroyed themselves because of their constant questioning. Now, there is another hadith in which the Prophet ﷺ said that Allah has relieved you of some things as a mercy, not out of forgetfulness. And Allah has not forgotten certain things, but He's left them for you as a mercy. So during the time of revelation, it was forbidden to ask about these things. Now why is that only true in the time of revelation? Because after the time of revelation, there's no concern anymore. If you say to me, oh Muhammad Tim, shall we make hajj every year? If I say yes, or if I say no, it doesn't change the ruling in Islam. Because the ruling is established. The religion is complete. There's nothing else to add. There's nothing that can be taken away. But during the life of the Prophet ﷺ, there is a chance that if the companions keep on asking, and what about this? And what about the witr? Do we have to pray that? And what about the sun? Do we have to pray that? And what about this? And Shall we pray any... And it becomes to the extent that if the Prophet ﷺ is saying yes, 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 the religion is becoming more complicated. And as the Prophet ﷺ said, it is not that Allah ﷺ forgot, but it is as a mercy to you that Allah ﷺ left certain things and remained silent about certain things as a mercy for you. So in the time of revelation, they were forbidden. But there's another kind of question that is forbidden at that time and it's forbidden now. And those are the questions that serve no benefit. They're not questions that are intended to, for a person to get close to Allah, but the questions that are either intended to trip somebody up or they're intended to show that the questioner is more knowledgeable than other people or they're intended to cause confusion amongst the other attendees or they're intended to show off, or they're intended for any purpose other than seeking the face of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this is the meaning of, we were forbidden that we should ask anything. It was not that they were forbidden from asking any question. Not at all. Islam is not like that. They were allowed and they did ask. But they were forbidden from two types of questions. One, asking things that could lead to obligations in Islam. And number two, asking things that had no need. As for no need, this applies to everybody. But the one that Anas is talking about here is the one that only applied to the Sahaba during the time of the revelation and that is that they were forbidden from asking things that could lead to further difficulty or could lead to further things being revealed in the religion. It therefore pleased us that an intelligent person from the dwellers of the desert should come and ask the Prophet and we would listen to it. A man from the dwellers of the desert came and said, O Muhammad, have you come to us? Or you have come to us, sorry, you have come to us as a messenger. And you believe or you, you hold that you, uh, 
that you that Allah Azza wa Jal has sent you. So let's see how the translation is here. And you told us your assertion that Allah has sent you as a prophet. Okay, so that's okay. So far, you came to us instead of your, but you, uh, without the messenger, you came to us and told us your assertion that verily Allah sent you as a prophet. The Prophet wasallam said, Sadaq, he's told the truth. Then the Bedouin said, who created the heaven? So the Prophet wasallam said, Allah. And the Bedouin said, who created the earth? And the Prophet wasallam said, Allah. And the Bedouin said, who raised these mountains and who created in them whatever is created there? The Prophet wasallam said, Allah. Upon this, the Bedouin said, By him who created the heaven and the earth and raised the mountains, has Allah sent you? The Prophet ﷺ said, yes. The Bedouin said, You also told us that five prayers have been made obligatory for us during the day and the night. The Prophet or, or your messenger, I see. Right, we're with it now. So he's talking about your messenger came to us, i.e. the Prophet ﷺ sent somebody and this is the messenger that came. So your messenger came to us and told us that five prayers had been made obligatory for us during the day and the night. The Prophet ﷺ said, he told you the truth. The Bedouin said, by him who sent you. Is it Allah who ordered you to perform these prayers? The Prophet ﷺ said, yes. The, best, the Bedouin said, your messenger told us that zakah has been made obligatory in our riches. The Prophet ﷺ said, he told the truth. The Bedouin said, by him who sent you as a prophet, is it Allah who ordered you uh, to uh, establish the zakah, the Prophet ﷺ said yes. The Bedouin said, your messenger told us that it had been made obligatory for us to fast every year during the month of Ramadan. The Prophet ﷺ said he told the truth. The Bedouin said, by him who sent you as a prophet, is it Allah who ordered you to do it? The Prophet ﷺ said yes. The Bedouin said, your messenger also told us that pilgrimage to the house had been made obligatory for him who is able to undertake the journey. The Prophet ﷺ said, yes, the narrator said that the Bedouin set off at the conclusion of this answer, but at the time of departure remarked, by he who sent you with the truth, I would neither make any addition nor would I diminish anything from them. The Prophet ﷺ said, if he were true to what he said, he will enter paradise. We have mostly covered the uh, topic here, and we've covered that, we've cleared up the issue of the translation. The translation should read, and I do think these translations uh, sometimes need revising, but it should read that the, there was a messenger sent by the Prophet ﷺ to the Bedouin, i.e. a da'i, someone who, one of the companions to give them da'wah. And the Bedouin is coming to confirm the news. And this establishes a very beneficial point from this hadith, and that is checking of what you know and seeking knowledge from the most knowledgeable person that you have access to. So if you have access to somebody who is more knowledgeable than the person who has given you the knowledge and you wish to check something and you wish to confirm something, then there's nothing wrong with doing so. And this also contains the virtue of the Prophet sending those companions out to give da'wah and having people establish the da'wah in their own areas because not every area can have great scholars and uh, great knowledgeable people in it. But what is required is for people to learn from them and then to spread out and to spread their message in the various different areas and places. From this is obviously uh, contains the oath of swearing by Allah, by he who sent you as a prophet, uh, and uh, confirming news when it is narrated to you. 
And again, you have a similar statement to the one that is made in the previous hadith. And the Prophet ﷺ said, if it were true what he said, he would enter paradise. I.e. that the reward for the one who sticks even to the middle, the muqtasid, the one who is in the middle, if they stick to that, then they will enter paradise. Uh, and indeed, Allah Azza wa Jal will give the places in paradise to those people who obey him, even if they don't increase or do anything more than that. And the purpose of these ahadith, and I want to stress this, is not that we become content with doing the minimum, but that we become aware of what the minimum is, and we know that we must never ever fall below the minimum. And the reason I say this is, there is a hadith in which the Prophet ﷺ explains that we have active periods and inactive periods. And the real success is that when you're on a high, you're going to do your sunan, you're going to do your optional deeds, you're going to do as much as you can. When you're on a bit of a low, the most important thing is that you never ever go below what is mentioned in these ahadith. So the secret here is that when it comes to you being on a high of your iman, when it comes to your iman being higher, you are going to do a lot more. When you're at a stage where you know, you're, you're not doing so well, you must make sure that you never, ever, ever fall below the minimum standard. It's not to aim for the minimum standard, but it's to be aware that that is a minimum standard that you have to reach. And if you are going through a tough time, maybe struggling to practice a little bit, you need to make sure that your struggle never goes below the minimum standard required in Islam. Chapter 4, explaining iman by, by means of which a person, explaining the iman by means of which a person is admitted into paradise and that the one who adheres to what is enjoined will enter into paradise. On the authority of Abu Ayyub al-Ansari that once during the journey of the Prophet ﷺ, a Bedouin appeared before him and caught hold of the nose string of his she-camel and said, O Messenger of Allah, or he said, Muhammad, inform me about that which takes me near to paradise and draws me away from the hellfire. Up to here you see the, the keenness of the companions to ask those questions which benefit them. And again, notice the word or, the messenger of Allah or Muhammad. Look how careful they were in their narration. They were so frightened to narrate the wrong thing that they wouldn't even swap between messenger of Allah and prophet or messenger of Allah and Muhammad. They would say that he either said messenger of Allah or he said the prophet one or the other. So it shows their keenness, but more than that, look at the question. That is the kind of question that benefits. You see people these days and they ask questions that don't benefit people. You know, and some of them mention this with regard to the hadith of the scorpion sting. One of our teachers said, there is a hadith that mentions one of the tabi'in being stung by a scorpion. And he said, if this were in this day, what would be the question be? What color scorpion was it? You know, like, uh, oh, where did you find it? What did you do with it afterwards? You know, these kind of questions that don't, you know, we don't sometimes ask the questions that have benefit in it. And yet, look at this question. How succinct and how clear it is. Tell me something that takes me near to paradise and draws me away from the hellfire. That is the question of somebody who is sincere and the question of somebody who wants to better themselves. The narrator said, the Prophet ﷺ stopped for a while and cast a glance to his companions and said, he was afforded a good opportunity or he said he was being guided well i.e. what an excellent opportunity Allah has given him and what an excellent question Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has guided him to. The Prophet ﷺ addressing the Bedouin said, repeat what you have uttered. And the Bedouin repeated that. 
So again, the Prophet ﷺ is checking. And this is something very beneficial, that you check that you've understood the question completely and that you've heard the question completely. And so the Prophet ﷺ said, the deed which can draw you near to paradise and take you away from hellfire is that you worship Allah and associate none with Him. And you establish the prayer and give the zakah and do good to your kin. And after having uttered these words, the Prophet ﷺ asked the Bedouin to release the nose string of the camel. So in this we see, as Al-Imam al-Nawawi said, that Iman here is being explained as being the thing which enters you into paradise and draws you away from the hellfire. Rather than the Prophet ﷺ give him one thing, he gave him a comprehensive description of Islam, which included that you worship Allah and you do not make any partner with him. And this is the tafsir of la ilaha illallah. And this is a very strong evidence to show the proper understanding of la ilaha illallah. Because the Prophet ﷺ did not say that, or did not explain the testimony of faith by saying to bear witness that there is no creator but Allah. Or to bear witness that Allah created you. Or to bear witness that Allah sustains you. He said that you worship Allah and you don't make any partner with him. And this is the meaning of la ilaha illallah as it was explained by the Prophet ﷺ. And you establish the prayer. First question may be, where is the testimony that Muhammad ﷺ is the messenger of Allah? This is encompassed within the statement of la ilaha illallah. Because there's no doubt that once you accept that there is no God worthy of worship but Allah, then for sure you accept his messenger ﷺ and what he brought. And there's no doubt in that. So sometimes these are summarized. Sometimes it may be the narrator didn't mention it. But sometimes they're simply summarized. By saying la ilaha illallah, it encompasses Muhammad Rasulullah. Because once you have attested the testimony of faith that enters you into Islam, then for sure you have testified in the belief in, your, in the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And you establish the prayer and notice the word establish. This is very, very different from the word pray. Because establishing the prayer means to establish it in its most complete form. And to really make sure that the prayer is performed in exactly the right way. It's very different from, that's why Allah doesn't say in the Quran, Sallu. You know, pray. Allah talks about Iqamati Salah. And he doesn't say He doesn't say pray and give the zakah He says establish the prayer Meaning all of its proper ways Its pillars, its obligatory deeds Its sunan, its time, its place Establish the prayer as something firm That you never ever leave And you never ever miss out And pay the zakah and do good to your kin The same here about hajj is the same that we mentioned before That the likelihood is here Either the narrator missed it out Or more likely than that It was before the hajj was made obligatory And do good to your kin And this is something that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Added to the description And it is encompassed within the basic understanding Of obeying Allah and avoiding The disobedience to Allah Azza wa Jal And all of this is, con is contained within uh, Islam and within Iman and within Ihsan And being good to your kin is a fundamental part of Islam And it's enough that Allah Azza wa mentioned the rights of the parents alongside his rights 
and that Allah mentioned the rights of the family and the rights of the, uh, the keeping the family ties as did the Prophet in his sunnah. So there are many, many reasons why this is included and you'll see that the Prophet didn't include everything every time. But when you join all of them together, and this is the benefit of Sahih Muslim, this you will only get from Sahih Muslim, you won't get it anywhere else. That you can read all of these hadith, one after the other after the other, and you can join all of these meanings together and come up with something comprehensive. Whereas the Prophet ﷺ would teach each companion what they needed in themselves. So he taught the basics and then of course he advised them to be good to the kin. To another one he advised them good manners, to another one he advised something else. And you see these uh, variations and we're going to come across more of them in Kitab al-Iman insha'Allah ta'ala. And after having uttered these words, the Prophet ﷺ asked the Bedouin to release the nose string of his camel. And this shows you the patience of the Prophet ﷺ. Because of course the camel is moving and the Bedouin physically stopped his camel. You know, without sort of stopping and asking or, you know, seeking permission. Look at the patience. And this shows you that when you give da'wah, you will need to be patient. People will not always treat you in a good way. People will not always be polite and courteous. People will sometimes push in. People will sometimes... Uh, you know, so not listen to you. Sometimes people will be a little bit rude, but at the end of the day, the Prophet ﷺ endured it and he was patient and he answered the questions without rebuking them. And this is a really, uh, an, 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 uh, or it gives evidence or and it gives meaning to the saying of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, وَإِنَّكَ لَعَلَىٰ خُلُقٍ عَظِيمٍ You are on the highest standard of character. Because you see that this man came and stopped his camel in the middle of wherever the Prophet ﷺ was going. He came and, and physically stopped his camel. And he held hold of his camel so the camel can't leave. He's got hold of the camel by the nose so that the camel can't go anywhere while he asks his question. And yet the Prophet ﷺ simply politely asks him to let go of the camel. And you see, subhanAllah, the manners of the Prophet ﷺ, with, especially with the Bedouins, who were very good people. You know, and they were noble companions of the Prophet ﷺ, and better than all of those who came after them, from the Tabi'een and the Tabi'ul Atba'a and those who followed them, without a shadow of a doubt. But they were a little more rough in the way that they would approach the Prophet ﷺ, in the way they would ask him. They were a little bit more, a little bit more rough in that way because dealing with uh, living in the desert and dealing with the camels, and that produces a kind of roughness in a person's character. And that is why none of the prophets were camel herders, and all of them were shepherds, because being a shepherd produces in your character a kind of softness and gentleness and a kind of guiding people. And being a camel herder produces a kind of roughness and harshness uh, in a person's character. That was true of the Bedouins at that time. And this is something that it didn't take anything away from them, but it means that the way that they would ask the questions were a little bit more rough and a little bit more harsh. And the Prophet ﷺ remained patient with those. Inshallah, we'll move on again. to chapter 5 concerning the statement of the Prophet ﷺ regarding the pillars of Islam and its great foundations it is narrated on the authority of Abdullah ibn Umar may Allah be pleased with them both that the Prophet ﷺ said Islam is raised upon five or Islam is built upon five I think built is probably a better word than raised Islam is built upon five. The oneness of Allah, the establishment of the prayer, the payment of the zakah, the fast of Ramadan, and the pilgrimage. 
And a person said to Abdullah ibn Umar, which of the two precedes the other, the pilgrimage or the fast of Ramadan? He replied, no, it is not the pilgrimage first, but the fasts of Ramadan precede the pilgrimage. We have covered many of these already. However, I want to uh, focus on a, a, couple of, uh, a couple of points. The first one uh, that I want to, uh, to uh, focus on here is the order of the five pillars. Or before that, that Islam is built upon these five pillars. What does that tell you? It tells you the foundation of Islam is built upon certain fundamentals. The foundation of Islam is built upon certain fundamentals. However, these fundamentals, ya ikhwani, are not equal. And this is extremely important for you to understand. These are not five equal pillars. The first pillar holds up all of the other pillars. Without it, none of your deeds are accepted. Allah Azza wa Jal mentions in the Quran, وَقَدِمْنَا إِلَى مَا عَمَلُوا مِنْ عَمَلٍ فَجَعَلْنَاهُ هَبَاءً We came to what the, the, the deeds that they did and we turned it into scattered dust. The deeds that are based or that, are not, that do not come with the oneness of Allah are not accepted by Allah Azza wa Jal. And Allah Azza wa Jal says, لَإِنْ أَشْرَكْتَ لَيَحْبَطَنَّ عَمَلُكَ if you had made a partner with Allah, we would have destroyed all of your deeds. And he said this to the Prophet ﷺ, that if you'd made a partner with Allah, we would have destroyed all of your deeds. So really, we have to understand that the first pillar holds up all of the other pillars. They're not five equal pillars. The first pillar holds up all of the others. And the second pillar is more important than the others. And also what we notice about the order of the pillars is that the oneness of Allah and the testimony that there is no God worthy of worship except Allah and that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam is the messenger of Allah. This uh, pillar is something that a Muslim has at every moment of their life. From the minute they accept Islam until the moment they die, every single thing is about the oneness of Allah. After that, the prayer is something that they perform a minimum of five times a day. The zakah is something that they give once a year when the money has, uh, has come to or has been held for a year. And the fasting of Ramadan is again something that happens once a year. And the pilgrimage is something that happens once in a lifetime. And so you see the order here is in order of frequency to a certain extent in the sense that the oneness of Allah is something that you have every minute of every day. The salah is five times a day. The zakah is every time a year passes and it may be more than once in a year that the, that the year passes that you've had that, length, that, that amount of money for. Uh, and likewise, the fasting in Ramadan once a year and the pilgrimage once in a lifetime. And as regarding the statement of Abdullah ibn Umar, this is to clarify that there are a number of different wordings of the hadith. In this hadith, many times uh, hajj comes before Ramadan and sometimes Ramadan comes before hajj. Uh, and Abdullah ibn Umar is clarifying that 
Ramadan was said to become before the Hajj in the order of the in the in the order of those uh, five pillars. Again, I think we've covered a great deal about the five pillars, so I'm not going to hover on it too long, inshallah ta'ala. The main thing you have there is the order, and you have the word that it's built or that it's raised upon it. And you have to realize that not all of the pillars are equal. I think those are the most important points that we can mention with regard to those uh, actions. And again, all of these are part of your iman, and that's why Al-Imam Muslim mentioned them in Kitab al-Iman. The command to believe in Allah and His Messenger and the laws of Islam, calling people to it, asking about it, memorizing it, and conveying it to those who have not heard the message. It is narrated on the authority of Ibn Abbas that a delegation of Abdul Qais came to the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam and said, O Messenger of Allah, indeed ours is the tribe of Rabi'ah and there stands between you and us the disbelievers of Mudar. And we find no freedom to come to you except in the sacred months. This first part of the hadith is extremely important. It sets the reason why this delegation of Abdul Qais came to the Prophet ﷺ. They were of a tribe that between them and between the Prophet ﷺ was a large enemy. And of course the enemy would fight them all year round. But the enemy would not fight during the sacred months. Four months that were sacred or that are sacred in the Islamic uh, calendar And in those four months the enemies would not fight each other And so the only opportunity they had to seek knowledge Was to seek knowledge during the sacred months That was the only opportunity that they had To seek knowledge during the sacred months And so you see that they come to the Prophet ﷺ and they tell him that we don't have the opportunity to come to you every time. We can't come and see you all the time. We only have an opportunity at a very limited time. So direct us to an act which we should ourselves perform and invite those who, I think the better word here is, we left behind. Direct us to an act with which we should ourselves perform and invite those whom we left behind is an example of the perfect niyyah. And Al-Imam Ahmad, rahimahullah ta'ala, mentioned this hadith as being the example of the perfect intention for seeking knowledge. As for the person who says, I seek knowledge to benefit myself, alhamdulillah, but they are deficient. They're good, but they're deficient. The proper intention for going out and seeking knowledge is the one mentioned here. Direct us to an act of worship which we can ourselves perform and we can teach to those who we left behind. It is the absolute perfect example of an intention for seeking knowledge. When you go out to learn Islam, you don't just go out for yourself. You go out to correct yourself first. Note that they mentioned themselves first. So you go out to correct yourself first. And once you have corrected yourself, you're going to go and pass the message on to those who came behind. And that is because Islam is built upon a process of learning, acting, calling, and being patient. And the evidence for this is, وَالْعَصْرِ إِنَّ الْإِنسَانَ لَفِي خُسْرِ إِلَّا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَعَمِلُوا الصَّالِحَاتِ وَتَوَاصَوْا بِالْحَقِّ وَتَوَاصَوْا بِالصَّبْرِ by time, indeed, mankind is at loss, except those who believe and do good deeds. 
and advise one another to the truth and advise one another to patience. So belief can only come about with knowledge. So the first condition is getting knowledge. You have to get the knowledge. When you get the knowledge, you have to act upon it. You have to act upon it. And then when you act upon it, you have to have the tawasi. You have to go and tell people. You go and tell people. And then finally, you have to have the patience. This is the explanation. Four things. Learn, act, teach, patient. Or be patient. Learn, act, teach, be patient. And look at the example within this. And this is what Imam Ahmed said when he was asked about the intention for learning Islam. The intention for Talabul Ilm, he mentioned the hadith of the waft of Abdul Qais. Because it contains the perfect intention. And Imam Ahmed mentioned, he said, the intention is to correct yourselves and others. They asked him, what is the right intention for seeking knowledge? He said, to correct yourselves and others. You don't want your benefit that you learn to be limited to yourself alone. Because then you'll be good, but you'll only ever be at a limited level. You'll only ever reach a certain level because you've benefited yourself. You're like a star in the sky. But you start to teach others and you become like the full moon. As we find in the hadith of the Prophet You're much more beneficial than the, the small stars in the sky. Because you are now benefiting other people. Other people are becoming corrected because of you. And you're teaching others, and you're benefiting others, and you, therefore you're benefiting yourself in a way you could not do. You couldn't do enough worship to benefit yourself that much. You couldn't do it. It would be impossible. The only way you can get that kind of reward is to be able to share that with other people. And of course, you can only share what you know and what you're certain of. You can't share something you don't know or something you're not certain of. You can't speak without knowledge because it's a major sin. So here we have the perfect intention for seeking knowledge. Direct us to an act which we ourselves should perform. And note the order here. The order here is critical. We ourselves do it first. I do it first myself, and then I take it, and I go and I pass it on to those people who are not able to come, are not able to hear from you, and we pass it on to them. Tell us something which we ourselves can perform, and we can uh, invite those who left, we left behind. Upon this, the Prophet ﷺ said, I command you to do four things and prohibit you from four things. The, th the four things which I command you to do are the faith in Allah, or iman in Allah. And he said, this means to testify that there is no God but Allah. And Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. And to perform the prayer and to give the zakah. And that you pay one-fifth of the booty fallen to your lot. And I prohibit you to use the round gourd and wine jars and wooden pots or skins for wine. And Khalaf ibn Hisham made this addition to his narration, testifying the fact that there is no God but Allah. And then with his finger, he pointed to the oneness of Allah Azza wa Jalla. So the Prophet ﷺ commanded them to do four things and prohibited them from doing four things. These are not the only four things. 
they are commanded to do, and they're not the only four things they're prohibited from doing. But the Prophet ﷺ looked at their situation and taught them the most important things that they needed to know. And we have a principle in da'wah, you can't give everything to everyone at once. You have to give things to people in le by level of importance. So the Prophet ﷺ, with regard to the commands, commanded them first of all with al-imanu billah, to believe in Allah. And he explained what it means to believe in Allah, which he said, to believe in Allah means to testify that there's no God worthy of worship but Allah, and that Muhammad is the messenger of Allah, and to perform the prayer, and to give the zakah, and to pay the khumus, which is one-fifth of the war booty, fall into your lot. The khumus is not the khumus that we hear about today in certain places, it's not like this. Uh, the purpose of the khumus is that as part of the army, when the army takes uh, a share of uh, the wealth or captures a share of the wealth, then when that wealth is distributed, one-fifth of the wealth returns to the Muslim treasury. It's not about individual people, and it's not about people's income, it's not about people's earnings, it's not a tax on your, you know, your income that you have. It is something that, a that an army, when the, when the army captures the wealth, they distribute the wealth among the soldiers who fight in the army. But of course, one-fifth returns to the Muslim treasurer, to the Muslim treasury. And this is a further evidence that these matters are matters that relate to the waliul amr. They relate to the ruler. Because you're seeing here that, how are you supposed to have a system where it is, you know, it's run amok by individuals who have no control over them? It is clear here that this is part of a system that when an army goes out with a legitimate leader who is the leader of the Muslims, and that leader of the Muslims takes a fifth of what the army captures for the Muslim treasury in order for that to be spent on the poor and to be spent on improving the economy and the lives of the people. And so it's not the khumus that we hear about people uh, saying today of, you know, it's a tax on everything that you earn, as there is in some countries, nor is it uh, something that is randomly done by individuals, but it's something that is done as part of a legitimate and recognized system uh, as all countries have a legitimate and recognized army. Again, the Hajj is not in there, and we've already mentioned the reason for that. It's very interesting that the Prophet ﷺ explains Iman as Islam here. And you'll notice that, that he explains Iman with what he explained Islam with in the Hadith of Jibreel. And this is a proof that Islam and Iman are interchangeable when they are mentioned in separately, and when they come together, they have a different meaning. And I prohibit you from using. And the Prophet ﷺ mentioned certain things that were prohibited uh, from uh, using. And all of these relate to the storage of, uh, Wallahu alam, they relate to things relating like the storage of food and drink. And this was something that the Prophet ﷺ likely told them about because of his knowledge that they were in need of it. And that maybe they were a people who traditionally used to eat or used to produce alcohol or used to eat in things that would turn would uh, turn to alcohol quickly. Because we know that what you store, there are some foods that we eat that turn to alcohol. And you guys know that there are, I mean, fruits and things like that. They ferment and they turn to alcohol. Certain containers that you put those things in, those containers themselves can help to speed up the process. So the Prophet ﷺ forbade the use of things that might encourage people to drink alcohol or might themselves 
speed up the process of the, the fruit or the food fermenting and turning into alcohol itself. So he forbade uh, the use of these particular wooden pots because they were known that when you put food in them, the food would turn to alcohol very quickly. And this is something that is very specific to the people of that particular time um, because he saw that there was a need in that regard. But what you can take from this, which I think that is uh, extremely, extremely important, what you can take from this is this concept of said of of blocking the roads that lead to haram. None of these things on their own lead to something or in themselves may, may in themselves be haram. For example, the wooden containers. Those wooden containers in themselves, there's nothing wrong with them. But the fear is that if they use those wooden containers, they will be tempted into alcohol or they will be involved in alcohol in some way. And so the Islam blocks everything that leads to haram. It doesn't just block the haram, it blocks the things that lead to the haram. And that's why when you talk about things like segregation, when you talk about you know, these kind of issues, people say, oh, but you know this and that and the other. But Islam blocks everything that leads to haram. It doesn't just block the haram. It blocks the things that lead to the haram as well. Uh, Khalaf ibn Hisham made an addition that the Prophet ﷺ pointed when he said the oneness of Allah. And this is authentically reported from the Prophet ﷺ that sometimes when he would say la ilaha illallah, he would point. However, I want to warn you against doing this in the prayer, which people have a habit of doing. When you see every time the, the Imam reads la ilaha illallah, the congregation starts to point. This is not from the sunnah. And don't do this. However, if you are saying la ilaha illallah on the mimbar, or you're saying la ilaha illallah from time to time, and you want to raise your finger to point, then this is authentically proven from the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ that he would from time to time, not every single time, but that he would from time to time raise his finger and he would point. Uh, and this is something which is acceptable and something which is uh, allowed. Chapter 7, calling the people to the declaration of faith and the laws of Islam. Before that, have a look back at the, at the chapter title of Al-Imam al-Nawi, just so that we make sure that we've ticked off understanding what, what Al-Imam al-Nawi understood from this hadith. The command to believe in Allah and His Messenger, that's clear. I command you with four things. The first one is Al-Iman Billah, and the first part of Iman is to testify that there is no God worthy of worship except Allah. The laws of Islam, that's very clear because much of what the Prophet ﷺ said regarding the prayer, the zakah, the war booty regarding the prohibition of these various uh, things that were being used, then the Prophet ﷺ clearly is explaining the laws of Islam. Calling people to it, that's going and telling the people who are behind. Asking about it, the permissibility of going and asking the mufti or asking the one in the position of the mufti to ask that person about the essentials of Islam memorizing it because they memorized what was said by the Prophet ﷺ and they conveyed it to those people who had not heard the message and of course the Prophet ﷺ called them to it. So this is just so that we have an understanding of where Al-Imam al-Nawi is in, with regard to this hadith. As for chapter number 7, calling the people to the twin declaration of faith and the laws of Islam. It's reported on the authority of Ibn Abbas that Mu'adh said, the messenger of Allah وسلم, sent me as a governor of Yemen and at the time of departure instructed me this. 
You will soon find yourself in a community, one among the people of the book. So let the first thing you call them to be to testify that there is no God but Allah and that I, Muhammad, am the messenger of Allah. And if they accept this, then tell them that Allah has enjoined upon them five prayers during the day and the night. And if they accept this, then tell them that Allah has made zakah obligatory for them and it should be collected from their rich and distributed among their poor. And if they agree to it, do not take the best of their wealth and beware of the supplication of the oppressed for there is no barrier between him and Allah or between it and Allah. This hadith really represents the most clear of instructions to the da'iyah, to the one who calls others to Islam. Because here, Mu'adh radiallahu an is being sent out as a da'iyah. And he's not being sent out after the death of the Prophet The Prophet is sending him to Yemen. And he's sending him with a brief of how to give da'wah. And one of the saddest things is that we have strayed from this methodology of giving da'wah in, in, a, in a large part. Not completely, but in a large part we have strayed from this methodology. We've strayed into all sorts of things like science and, you know, and using sort of logic to try and convince people and using all sorts of things. And we've lost the methodology of the sunnah in calling the people to Allah and calling the people to Islam. The Prophet ﷺ said, You are going to come to a people who are from the people of the book. Now the first thing we want to benefit from this is before this that the permissibility of sending people to give da'wah and the importance of the Muslim ruler of taking care and taking importance in giving da'wah and spreading the message of Islam. And that's why you see that until this day, those in authority over the Muslims continue to give importance to calling people to Islam. And they continue to spend their money, jazahumullahu khaira, in supporting people and giving the message of Islam. And that even here, you, you see, mashallah, tabarakallah, here in Dubai and elsewhere, there's a huge effort to spread the message of Islam to the non-Muslims who come here. And that is something that is very praiseworthy, and it's something that everyone should help them in and be involved in. Because the Prophet ﷺ would give importance and would set people that your job is to go and give da'wah to these people, and your job is to go and give da'wah to these people. He sent Ali ibn Abi Talib, and he sent Mu'adh ibn Jabal, and he sent others. And even if you look at his military commanders, all of his military commanders were du'at. Before they would attack their enemy, they would sit with their enemy and call them to Islam. You see Amr ibn al-As, you see others, radiallahu anhum ajma'in, who would spend weeks and weeks giving da'wah to their enemy before they would attack them. They would meet in the battle and they would go and send a delegation and call them to Islam. And that's the importance of da'wah in Islam. The importance of da'wah in Islam. So you see here that the, the ruler is giving attention to assigning the job of da'wah to certain individuals and getting those individuals prepared and giving them the advice and the knowledge they need to be able to go and give da'wah. And that is true whether it is true for the overall ruler, but also for the individual, because we said there is a supreme ruler and there are people in charge. So for example, here you have a, a, a ministry that is in charge of da'wah-related activities, 
The head of that ministry again takes on the responsibility of assigning individuals to give da'wah. And within there, there are individuals who might be responsible for an area, and they too take responsibility of assigning individuals to go out and give da'wah. And this is a, and the example that the Prophet ﷺ gave. And then, of course, he says to Mu'ad, you're coming to a people of the book. And the benefit of this is to know who it is you are giving da'wah to. And this is a fundamental principle when it comes to da'wah. A fundamental principle when it comes to da'wah is that you know who it is that you are giving da'wah to. You don't give da'wah to people upon ignorance. And you've seen so many examples of this. You see a person come to another and he says, you know, I'm going to tell you, you know, your Bible is full of mistakes. And you know, your Bible, it has this in it and it has that in it and it has the other in it. And your Bible, I can quote you, it has errors and it goes against itself and it contradicts itself. And the person is just tapping their finger and they're still going 20 minutes. I can quote you in John and in Matthew and Mark and Luke and here. And the person says, excuse me, I didn't want to stop you in the middle of all of that, but I don't believe in the Bible. This happens. We've seen this happen with our own eyes. The person presumes about somebody. You're a Christian? Okay, there you go. You're going to get the full works. You know that the person says, I'm a Christian. Did you know that Jesus wasn't crucified? I don't believe that Jesus was crucified. They're from a different denomination. So you have to know who it is that you're giving da'wah to. You're coming to a people of the book. You know who it is you're giving da'wah to. You understand who those people are and what they believe. You take some time out to ask before you jump in there and start, you know, giving that da'wah and start, you know, making presumptions. You ask people, can I ask you, are you of any particular faith? I'm a Christian. Can I ask you what denomination you are? A Protestant. Do you believe that Jesus was crucified? Yes, I do. Then you can challenge it. Do you believe the Bible is the divine word of God? Yes, I do. Then you can challenge it. But as for jumping in and presuming, this goes against the methodology of da'wah in the hadith of Mu'adh that you know. From also from the benefits of this line is the virtue or the nearness of the people of the book to the Muslims. The people of the book are very, very near to us. The Jews and the Christians, regardless of modern issues, they are near to us. They are nearer to us than any other religious group. They almost believe as they should, but they have some deviancy in their belief that has taken them away from the path. They are the closest people to you, and they should be the easiest people to call to Islam, particularly the Christians, because of the way that the Christians uh, have that affinity and that closeness towards Islam. So you shouldn't uh, treat them the same as the others and you should realize that Allah gave them a, a degree of honor in the Quran in the sense that he gave them that opportunity and that nearness to the Muslims and he made their food halal for us and our food halal for them so that there can be this kind of nearness that will lead to them accepting Islam and no doubt from them there are stubborn people and from them are, there are those people who would be the greatest enemies to Islam but no doubt the majority of them are a major opportunity for calling them to Islam and they are given a very special place in the Quran and a very special place in the Sunnah. O people of the book, come to a word that is equal between you and us, a just word that is we can agree on between you and us, that you will not worship anyone but Allah 
and you will not make any partner with him. And that some of us don't take others as lords besides Allah. And you have to remember this is a major means of shirk amongst the Jews and the Christians. That many of the Jews and the Christians, while they may affirm the oneness of Allah in a very general way, when it comes to it, many of them fail in the issue of taking their monks and rabbis as lords besides Allah. Making them, allowing them to make halal what Allah made haram, and allowing them to make haram what Allah made halal. So this is something that is uh, important uh, to bear in mind, that often you might get to the point, yes, I believe in one God, yes, I believe that only God deserves to be worshipped, but maybe especially amongst uh, the Jews that you will find that they will go down that route, but they will still allow their rabbis and their religious leaders to change their law, to manipulate their religion knowingly, and knowingly follow them in what they know that Allah made haram. And so these are all things that you have to bear in mind when you're dealing with the people of the book. So let the first thing you call them to be that there is no God worthy of worship but Allah. This narration has a beautiful, uh, there's another narration uh, to it. And that is using the word tawheed. That the Prophet said that you call them to the tawheed of Allah. And that is a proof that the word tawheed is not something that was uh, invented rather recently. Um, but it is something that was used, it was a word that was used by the Prophet And it's a word you find in Sahih Muslim, in the hadith of Hajj from the hadith of Jabir. The Prophet began to call out the call of Tawheed. So the word Tawheed was known to the Prophet and it was known to the companions. And it's mentioned in a handful of ahadith. So that nobody says that this is a new word that was invented recently. And indeed in the hadith of Jabir in Sahih Muslim it's mentioned. And in some of the other wordings of this hadith outside of Sahih Muslim, it is mentioned that the Prophet said, let you call them to the Tawheed of Allah, i.e. to worship Allah alone and not make any partner with him. And that Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. And this, brothers and sisters, is the essence of your da'wah. And where people go wrong is they get diverted. Why? People want to talk about women's rights. People want to talk about hijab. People want to talk about the beard. People want to talk about the thaw. People want to talk about anything other than worshipping Allah alone. You need to make sure that whatever you're dealing with in da'wah, it always gets brought back to worshipping Allah alone. People, the shaitan, will always try to divert you. And will try to divert the person you're calling to Islam. Yes, but you know, I don't see how I can give up my boyfriend. I don't see how I can give up my girlfriend. Take it back. Deal with the answer, answer it quickly, take it back to the worship of Allah. Your da'wah from beginning to end is all about calling people to La ilaha illallah Muhammadur Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Until they accept that, you do not have any other topic that you need to deal with. Now, no doubt, someone may say, look, I want to become Muslim, but I can't understand the hijab. No problem. Answer the question, but return it back. Once you've answered the question, do not get on a long debate about then you go to marriage, divorce, women's rights, where the role of the woman in the society, and it becomes a never-ending issue. People will never accept the role of men and women in Muslim society until they accept there is no God worthy of worship but Allah and that Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. 
So you can't start letting people take you away. Yes, you need to answer the question. I'm not saying I'm not going to answer that till you say La ilaha illallah. Answer it and bring it back to La ilaha illallah. So as we were saying, let's get back to what's really important. Do you bear witness that there is no God worthy of worship but Allah? Yes, but I want to know why Muslims mistreat Christians in this country or that country. Answer the question, come back. Now we come back to the important point. La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. This is the only topic you have in da'wah. It's not science and the Qur'an, it's not the miracles of this and that, it's not any of this stuff. This is stuff you can touch upon very quickly, bring it straight back to la ilaha illallah. It's not logic, it's not that I can prove to you that this pen and this and all of this stuff. It's nothing about that. You can touch upon it if you think the person needs it. If a person is very scientifically oriented, you might want to say, can point out a few things to you that will take you to the conclusion that there is no God worthy of worship but Allah and Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. But your main topic is only that. Tawheed, 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 until the person accepts it. And there isn't another topic on the cards. And a lot of people will come and say, you know, start talking about good manners to others and you know in Islam, we're good to our parents. You know what the person's going to reply? They're going to say, I'm good to my parents. Christians are good to their parents. Jesus said in the Bible that if, you know, you get slapped on one cheek, then turn and give them the other cheek. They're going to give you the whole, you know, they're going to give you one after the other after the other. Atheists are so nice to other people. Atheists are good to their parents. You're not giving Islam anything that makes it different from any other religion. See, yeah, but Islam says be good to your neighbor. Guess what? So does Christianity. So does Judaism. So does Hinduism. So does Sikhism. So does every other religion tell you to be good to your neighbor. Next one. Yeah, but you know, Islam tells us that and people keep going, but it's not da'wah. Da'wah is take it back to la ilaha illallah, the one thing that Islam has that not any other religion in the world can even claim a finger to. And that is that we worship none but Allah and we don't make any partner with him in any way. And we bear witness that Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. This is your da'wah in Islam. This is what you can be successful in. So make your da'wah about this. And another problem people have is that they believe for some reason that they have been given the job of forcibly, you know, sort of ramming it down the person's throat until they accept. And that's not the truth. <inaudible> Your job is to give the message. You can't guide the person to Islam. You are a guide as in you are, you show them the way. But Allah will take them there or leave them here. Your job is to give the message. And some people are so embarrassed about their religion. And it's so sad. You see Muslims so embarrassed about their religion that they try and skirt it. You know, they'll ask you an awkward question. Many, one of the many awkward questions. You know, they'll ask you something about one of the awkward questions regarding Islam. And a person immediately gets on the defensive. You know, they'll ask you something to do with marriage or something to do with divorce or something to do with fighting, whatever it is that becomes an awkward question. And you start to answer in the wrong way and you give a half-baked answer and the person isn't interested because you haven't given them the truth. Give them the truth, it's not your job to guide them. Give them the truth. This is our religion. There are more Muslim women or there are more women becoming Muslim, I don't know about Dubai, but in the UK or in Europe in general, the number is something like three women for every one man. And yet Islam has the worst reputation of any other religion for women's rights. Completely wrongly, but it does. Reality in Western media, Islam has the worst reputation for women's rights. 
And yet, why is it that in Western Europe, three times more women are becoming Muslim than men? Tell them the truth. Don't sweeten it for people. Don't give it people, yeah, yeah, you know, actually, yeah, there's no such thing as the husband being the head of the household, and there's no such... Give them the truth, and let them take it, and they'll accept it because the truth is sweet. And people love the truth. The truth is easy to accept. Remember that Allah Azzawajal has already taken a promise from every single human being from the loins of Adam, Alastu bi Rabbikum, am I not your Lord? They said yes, and they testified. Allah Azzawajal made them testify. You're already just taking them back to what they already know. You don't have to try to lie and twist for people. Oh, this doesn't exist in Islam. Yeah, yeah, no, no, this doesn't exist in Islam. Someone may come and ask a question about the beard. And come and say, you know, I'm not sure about this beard thing in Islam, you know. Why, why you guys have a beard? Beard? No, no, there's no beard in Islam. This is just a fashion that some people have. And you're telling them something and you're making, you know, you're giving Islam the wrong, a wrong impression of Islam. What are they going to do if they become Muslim and five days later they find out that you told them a lie? Many of them will leave Islam. Don't give Islam a false image. Don't give Islam a false picture. Tell people Islam like it is. And Islam is beautiful. And there's nothing to be shy about in Islam from the first letter of the Qur'an to the last. All of it is beautiful and all of it is fair and all of it is just. And all of it applies absolutely in our modern times. And all of it takes care of the rights of every single individual from the most important in society to the least in society. This is the religion of Islam. But your first call is to the book of Allah. And this is a refutation, this, this hadith of those people whose first call is to anything other than Tawheed. And you see, you name me a sect, you'll find that that sect has a call to something other than Tawheed. There is only one group of people who call the people to worship Allah alone, and that is Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah. So if you want to be from the people of the Sunnah, then be from the people. When you give da'wah, the first thing you call the people to is to worship Allah alone, and nothing else other than that. This is the sunnah with regard to Mu'ad and with regard to all of the companions. Whether they were, the, like we said, the military commanders who gave da'wah or the, uh, the people who were sent out as du'ad to give da'wah, every single one of them called the people to la ilaha illallah. And you see in the world today, if you open your eyes, the state of the people when they are not called to la ilaha illallah and what happens to them and all the turmoil and the strife and the killing that is going on all over the world. And we ask Allah Azza wa Jal to rectify the state of the Ummah. SubhanAllah, you see the state of the people. Why? Because the people have been called to something other than La ilaha illallah and other than Muhammad Rasulullah. Been called to this and that and you know all this uh, siyasa and politics and all this stuff. None of this. Where did Mu'ad come and call the people? You know what it is? Mu'ad go to Yemen and tell them to join our political union and they'll become Muslim later. This just doesn't exist. Go and call them to la ilaha illallah and if they don't say, accept la ilaha illallah, we don't want them. This is subhanAllah, this is the sunnah. And this is a huge reason why this world is in such a mess. Because the first call to people is not la ilaha illallah. And that's what it needs to be. We need to be the first thing we call the people to la ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. And when the people correct themselves, Allah Azza wa Jal will correct the people. And Allah Azza wa Jal doesn't change the condition of a people until they change what is among in their own selves. And so our job is to go and make peace and to make, uh, to make uh, good relations between people and to call people to the worship of Allah Azza wa Jal alone and to the testimony that Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is the Messenger of Allah. 
And then if they accept, look, the Prophet ﷺ didn't even mention the salah. If they accept this, then tell them that Allah has made five obligatory prayers. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't answer a person's question if they ask you, or you can't mention a brief thing about this beforehand, but you don't want to get diverted into the prayer before you've dealt with la ilaha illallah. So what you would do is, obviously you want to explain the prayer to the person before they, before they accept the shahada, or at least you want to explain to them in the very early time of them accepting, but you want the first thing you've dealt with and you've got out of the way is la ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. Okay, you've accepted that. Allah has enjoined upon you five daily prayers. And you know that Allah has enjoined them and you've already testified that Allah is the one that is deserving of worship. And therefore, when you know Allah has made it obligatory for you, you also know that you have to. You have to pray. Much, much easier on a person when they've accepted la ilaha illallah than if they haven't accepted la ilaha illallah. And if they accept it, then tell, Allah that, tell them that Allah has made zakat obligatory for them. And it is to be collected from their rich and distributed among their poor. This is one of the narrations with the word there. As in, that your zakat doesn't harm you at all. It goes back to the people in your own community who are poor. Your own people. You know, and this is the wonderful thing about the zakat. The amazing thing about the zakat. Subhanallah, the zakah goes from the rich people of a community and goes back to help the same community, the same poor people in the community. And no doubt the zakah that you give locally for those who need it is deserving, is more deserving that you look locally and make sure are there some people locally who need um, help. And again, you know, in the UK we have this sort of very funny habit in the UK sometimes of uh, believing that in the UK there are no people who need zakah. And I think this is something that it comes from an ignorance about what the zakah is. And it also comes from an ignorance about how your brothers and sisters are doing. Don't be a stranger to the person next to you. Be, I'm not saying be nosy that you know you know everything that they do. But be aware. You know, some of them may be going through financial difficulty even when they have a good job. Some of them may be getting paid and they're going through financial difficulty. Some of them may be even getting welfare benefits from the state or from the government and still be going through difficulty. And we have this impression in the UK that, you know, there are no poor people because if you're poor, the government will give you money. But the reality is there are some people who can't get it. There are some people who get it and it's not enough to take care of their basic needs. Remember that there are two types of poor people. The one who is completely destitute, has no money at all. And then there are people who just don't have enough money for their basic needs. They can't quite cover their rent. They've got a salary, but it's not enough to cover their rent and bills. These are all people who are deserving of the zakah. And of course, if the government collects the zakah in a country, then no doubt the Wali al-Amr knows those people who are most deserving and will set up organizations and charities, as I'm sure they exist here, to help out people who are in need of help and so on and so forth. But also it's up to us as a community to help the Wali al-Amr. Because this is a major part of the Sunnah in Islam. That you don't work against, you cooperate with the Wali al-Amr. You cooperate with the people in authority to help them by looking out for your brothers and sisters who are in need and assisting them to get the help that they need. Even if it's just taking them to the organization or the charity or the department that's going to help them, you have to be aware of what your brothers and sisters are doing and, and their needs are and those people who are in need of the zakah and make sure that they get the help that they need because this is a right they have over you. And if they agree to it, then don't take the best of their wealth. 
This is from the rulings of the zakah collector, that the zakah collector doesn't take the best of wealth. The zakah collector doesn't take the best of wealth. The zakah collector takes the medium wealth. He doesn't take the wealth that is uh, deficient, such as a sheep that is injured or a camel that is injured. The zakah collector takes the medium standard. Not the rich, neither the poor. Not the, uh, the, the very high quality, you know, the most beloved thing to you. You have, you know, like the zakah collector comes to collect some gold from you. And you have, you know, the most beloved piece of jewelry to your wife. The zakah collector doesn't take this. They take the, either the cash equivalent or they take the gold that, has, that is uh, medium. It's neither the cheap and nasty stuff that has no value, nor is it the really expensive stuff that you hold really dear to yourself. Something in the middle. And this is from the, the rifq, the kindness and the mercy of Islam, that Islam doesn't come away and take the best of your wealth. Particularly, this is relevant when it comes to camels and sheep and things like that. That people have, you know, the prized camel. Um, I'm not, again, you know, I'm more of a sheep person, but, you know, someone has their prized camel that they, you know, that it's, it's, it's really beloved to them. The zakah collector doesn't come and take this. The zakah collector comes and takes the medium. Nor does he take the injured camel that is, you know, damaged and deficient. The medium. And this is from the rules of collecting the zakah. And beware of the supplication of the oppressed because there is no barrier between it and between Allah. And this is a very strong warning against any form of oppression. And believe me, oppression is of many types. But this, we're talking about the oppression towards other people. And this is an oppression that Allah will never overlook. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will never overlook it. It will either be taken into account in this world or in the next. Allah will never ever leave it. So you should be so, so careful regarding the dua of the oppressed. And just last night the brothers were mentioning a story, and we've heard many stories, of people who when they've oppressed someone and the person turns around to them and says a dua against them, that that dua becomes accepted by Allah. But one thing I want to point out, or two, things, two three things I want to point out that I think will be of benefit to you. The first is, if you have been oppressed yourself, your dua is accepted by Allah. Think about what you want to make it for. Don't necessarily think that you have to make it against the person. You can make it for the person. You can make it for yourself. Especially when that person, them changing and being correct will help many, many other people. Let's imagine an employer who is mistreating the worker. The worker is oppressed. What is better for the worker to do? Oh Allah, curse them. Oh Allah, don't let them have any wealth. Oh Allah, disgrace them. Or oh Allah, correct them. And when they're corrected, the condition of all of the other workers improves. Think about what you use your dua for. Your dua that is accepted. Especially when it comes to dua that can benefit the people. And that is why from the sunnah, and we will you know, perhaps touch upon some of these things, is to make dua for the ruler and to make dua for the people in charge. Because if they are corrected, the whole country and the whole uh, environment will be corrected. And from this is to make dua for the likes of the person who if they are corrected, many other people will be corrected with them. Like we said the example of the employer who is mistreating the employees. Think about whether you want to make dua against them or whether you want to make dua for them or for yourself. That you have something particular that you want to have, that you want to do that you feel the need uh, for, make dua, because your dua at this time is accepted when you've been oppressed. 
So use that opportunity wisely and don't use it simply just to curse people and just to invoke the, the anger of Allah upon people because this sometimes is not the best use of your uh, dua when you've been oppressed. And there's no doubt that there is no barrier between it and between Allah Azza wa Jal and that Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala will take account of every single oppression, even the horned sheep oppressing the sheep without horns. You know, even the sheep with horns that stabs the sheep without horns, Allah Azza wa Jal will take a recompense for that on the Day of Judgment. So nothing will be left, nothing will be lost. So make your chance and take your opportunity and fear Allah if you are in charge of people. You have some responsibility, even if it's over one person. Fear Allah with regard to them because you don't know that perhaps this may be a, an opportunity or maybe a reason for some of your deeds to be lost because of oppressing other people. And likewise, oppressing is not just about being in charge. Likewise, oppressing people who are your equals and your peers by speaking about them behind their back, by saying things to them that are unfair, by, you know, by cheating them, by lying to them. All of these are forms of oppression that Allah will not leave. And so he look at how he is establishing Mu'ath. You're going to go there, you're going to rule between the people. But when you do so, be careful of oppressing people. Because it's easy to do. It's easy to do. Be careful of oppressing people because there is no barrier between it and between Allah Azza wa Jal. And there's no doubt that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will take the people to account.